Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From Synagogues and Sanctuaries to Bars and Boardrooms, The Apostle Paul at the Areopagus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 27, 2008. At lunch last week, it was my pleasure to meet a young computer scientist from London who for the last four years has taught at Stanford as a specialist in artificial intelligence. Neil is also a deeply committed Christian who's exploring what it might look like to witness in the workplace among his unchurched 30-something friends. I was fascinated as he described how he and his buddies back in London understood church. Forget church at 11 a.m. on Sunday, he said. Rather, meet your friends for sports and games on Sunday, and then repair to the pub. Meet people on their own terms and at their own places, he said, rather than expect them to come to your own church. Neil sounded like a modern version of Paul at the Areopagus. The Areopagus, the Areopagus was both a place and a group. It's a small rocky hill northwest of the Acropolis in Athens, which is Greek for Hill of Ares, or in Latin, Mars Hill. More importantly, the Areopagus was the most prestigious and venerable council of elders in the history of Athens, so named because it met on that site. Dating back to the 5th to 6th centuries before the time of Christ, the Areopagus consisted of nine archons, or chief magistrates, who guided the city-state away from rule by a king to rule by an oligarchy that laid the foundations for Greece's eventual democracy. Across the centuries, the Areopagus changed. So by the, by the time of the Apostle Paul, it was a place where matters of the criminal courts Law, philosophy, and politics were adjudicated. Paul, who had been publicly proclaiming the Jesus way in the marketplaces and synagogues with everyone and anyone, was ridiculed by these Athenians as a babbler who advocated foreign gods. And perhaps that's understandable if you were an influential Athenian. But these Athenians loved to learn the latest, and so they invited Paul to a meeting of Athens's most powerful and important venue to explain what they derided as his quote-unquote strange ideas. At our worst, we Christians have isolated and insulated ourselves from culture's mainstreams. We can be inward-looking, self-absorbed, self-important, and cloistered, instead of engaging people at our own modern-day Mars Hills. I remember a pastor friend who had a parishioner whose child had gone to Christian schools for so long that he was barely functional in the world at large. Another pastor confided to me several summers ago that at his annual denominational meetings, delegates were, in all honesty, quote, merely talking to themselves, end quote. 
and I still remember exactly where I was 25 years ago when one of my seminary professors remarked to me that he had never entered a movie theater. But at our best, Christians like Neil have always been just as comfortable living, learning, and sharing the gospel in the marketplace of ideas as in the ministry of the church, in bars and boardrooms, as well as in basilicas, in university lecture halls as easily as in church fellowship halls, in an outward centrifugal movement modeled after Paul at the Areopagus, believers have welcomed the opportunity to meet real people where they really live, work, and think in order to gain a hearing for their quote-unquote strange ideas about repentance, rebirth, and the resurrection. For example, when my friend Scott teaches seminary courses on evangelism, he routinely requires his students to attend art exhibits, interview artists in their studios, and to find their way to avant-garde film festivals. In a most creative and ambitious Areopagan endeavor, in 1992, Dennis and Eileen Harvey Bakke of the Mustard Scene Foundation created the Harvey Fellows Program. Each year, they identify, equip, encourage, and fund Christian graduate students who are enrolled in a program ranked in the top five of their field. They actively seek to interface the Christian faith with the secular marketplace, especially in those strategic spheres of influence where Christians might be underrepresented. Media, government, science, academia, and so on. In the 16 years since the program began, they've invested over $4 million in 225 Harvey Fellows worldwide representing 24 countries in over 40 academic and vocational fields. Paul, I think, would have approved. Interestingly enough, in that same year, 1992, Christian graduate students at Harvard University inaugurated what eventually became known as the Veritas Forums, resulting in a wonderful book called Finding God at Harvard that contains the Christian stories of over 40 Harvard faculty, alumni, and friends. The stated mission of the Veritas Forums is also decidedly Areopagan. Quote, we create forums for the exploration of true life. We seek to inspire the shapers of tomorrow's culture to connect their hardest questions with the person and story of Jesus Christ. In partnership with over 80 major universities now, the Veritas Forums have brought the Areopagus to the intellectuals, exploring anything and everything in public university settings and incorporating performances, lectures, music, film, seminars, debates, and the like, interactive formats intended to encourage rather than to suppress honest public dialogue and debate. Paul's confidence for addressing a venue such as the Areopagus rested upon a twofold rationale. First, as he told King Agrippa after he was arrested and accused of insanity, the message and events of the gospel were not, 
quote done in a corner, Acts 26, 26. Instead, they are matters of historical record and open to public debate, discourse, and inquiry for all honest seekers. In that sense, the Areopagus was the most natural and fitting of venues for Paul. Second, as Paul preached to the Athenians, he believed that God, quote, made the world and everything in it, end quote, and that every single person was, quote unquote, God's offspring. So in his mind, there was no person or sphere of influence outside of God's care and concern. All of so-called secular life, and not just sacred realms, were spheres of God's loving presence, or at least potentially so. Law, literature, medicine, education, the arts, business, government, science, quite literally anything and everything. And so, in his own Christian way, Paul viewed the venerable Areopagus as just another place where the Lord of all creation had gone before him and was already present. Indeed, Paul told the Athenians, God is not far from each one of us. The epistle from 1 Peter for this week hints at the purpose of these Pauline evangelistic forays which is not the acquisition of power, the manipulation of public opinion, or victory in debate, but rather the opportunity to, quote, give a reason for the hope that is in you. The manner in which believers express this hope, says Peter, is characterized not by belligerent rhetoric or bellicose power politics, but instead by, quote, gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3 15 to 16. What sort of reception did Paul receive at the Areopagus? Early in the book of Acts, we read that the first Christians, quote, enjoyed the favor of all the people, Acts 2.47. But a few chapters later, a raging mob stoned Stephen to death and scattered the church, Acts 7. I've always admired Luke's candor regarding Paul's reception among the Athenians. It was decidedly mixed. In Acts 17, 32-33, we read that some people sneered when they heard him speak about the resurrection. Others took a rain check and asked to learn more at a later date. I've always wondered if that was a polite put-off or honest interest. And a few people believed, namely Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and what Luke calls, quote, a number of others. And with that, says Luke, we read that, quote, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And now for further reflection. How and why do Christians become so isolated and ingrown. Can you think of other positive examples like Neil, the Veritas Forum, or the Harvey Fellows Program? What practical lessons can we draw from Paul's speech in Athens? And for further reading, see the book 
Finding God at Harvard, from 1997. For a book this week, this week I reviewed Joseph Stiglitz and Linda, Linda Bilms, The Three Trillion Dollar War, The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict, New York, W. W. Norton, 2008, 311 pages. The Bush administration told taxpayers that the Iraq War would cost about $50 billion and be paid for by the country's oil revenues. Joseph Stiglitz, chairman of President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors and a 2001 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics, along with Harvard professor Linda Bilmes, estimates that the real cost of the war is $3 trillion. And that's almost certainly what he calls a, quote, gross underestimate, end quote, due to the conservative methods and estimates used in their calculations. Even worse, because of the breathtaking incompetence and deliberate secrecy of the Department of Defense accounting procedures, no one can know the true cost of the war. And the $3 trillion cost, by the way, is all borrowed money and does not include the interest on the borrowed money. If you divide $3 trillion by the number of households in the United States, you get $25,000 per household. That's your share for the Iraq War. But don't worry, you won't have to pay because the war has been funded entirely by borrowing the money. We'll let others pay that debt. Plus, these economic costs of the war are off the books, above and beyond the Department of Defense's bloated budget. The richest country in the world, the authors observe, hasn't been able or willing to live within its means. But there's a, quote, simple message of this book, one that needs to be repeated over and over again. There is no free lunch and no free wars. In one way or another, we will pay these bills, end quote. We're already paying heavily in what economists call opportunity costs. The human consequences of the war have been as disastrous as the economic costs. After five years, the most powerful country in the world, a country that spends more on its military than all other countries combined, has not been able to subdue a country with only 10% of its size and 1% of its GDP. Iraq's middle class has been ravaged. A majority of its children don't attend school. The country now has only half the number of doctors as before the war. As of September 2007, over 4 million Iraqis, about one in every seven, had been displaced from their homes. Oil has soared from $25 a barrel to $100 a barrel since the war began, making the oil companies, along with defense contractors, one of the few beneficiaries of the war. 
more than 751,000 veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan who have already been discharged from the military will need medical care and benefits the rest of their lives. 1.6 million men and women have been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes, it would be a disaster for us to leave Iraq, the authors admit. But they argue that the longer we wait, the more disastrous these consequences will be for the U.S., for Iraq, and for the world. With no exit plan in sight, and Bush intent upon running out the clock in order to pass the problem to the next president, it looks like we'll delay that debacle just as we've pushed the economic costs into the far future. Given these economic and human costs, it's unconscionable that any, administ any administration can act with such impunity. Joseph Stiglitz and Linda Bilmes, The Three Trillion Dollar War. For film this week, I review a film called Yesterday. It's a Zulu film from the year 2004. About 40% of all people infected with HIV live in a handful of southern and eastern countries in Africa. This first Zulu film with an international release and original music puts a human face on this nightmare. It also shines a light on the complex web of forces that conspire against Africans with HIV AIDS especially women. There's only one man in this film, John, and he's absent. John works in a mine in Johannesburg, passed the AIDS virus to his wife yesterday, and beats her when she tells him the bad news about her, quote, falling down sickness, end quote. Yesterday was so named by her, by her father, who said that things were better yesterday than today. And so they were. Yesterday struggles to raise her daughter named Beauty, but the forces against her are many. Economic exploitation, superstitions in her remote village, cultural myths, gender discrimination, environmental degradation, a paucity of medical care that's a two-hour walk away, and so on. But like so many brave women, yesterday vows... Quote, until my child goes to school, I'll not die of this disease, end quote. The film yesterday has earned several nominations and awards at international film festivals and was the nominee for Best Foreign Language Film by the South African Academy Awards. The film is in Zulu with English subtitles. Yesterday, from the year 2004. This week, for poetry, we begin a series of poems by Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard of Bingen lived from 1098 to 1179. The Benedictine abbess founded two convents, conducted four preaching tours, wrote at least 400 letters, wrote music and a morality play, 
supervised illuminated manuscripts, cared for her fellow nuns, and wrote three major theological works based upon her very famous visions. All this despite very pronounced feelings of doubt, the lack of formal schooling, chronic illness that probably included depression and migraine headaches, and of course the subservient roles assigned to women in a male-dominated church and culture. In an age when life expectancy was somewhere around 40, Hildegard of Bingham lived a life that was remarkably long and incredibly productive. The very short poem or hymn this week is called O Shepherd of Souls by Hildegard of Bingen. O Shepherd of Souls and O First Voice through whom all creation was summoned, now to you, to you may it give pleasure and dignity to liberate us from our miseries and languishing. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 27th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.